Um, so we'll go ahead and get started. Welcome to uh, part three of our series entitled Overcoming Millennial Madness, an introduction to the study of prophecy and end times. Um, for some of you, I know this is the first week you're here, so I would invite you to go back and, and listen to the first two parts that, are, that should be online. In class one, we looked at the topic of why study prophecy. Uh, in class two, we reviewed some of the key terms related to eschatology and prophecy uh, and actually provided you a glossary that you can go and down, download and uh, really use as a reference as we continue to move throughout these various um, equipping hours on eschatology. This will be the final one of this particular series, uh, but Lord willing, uh, sometime next year, maybe in Q1, we'll, we'll pick it up again. Um, and that hopefully that list will be helpful as we go along. Uh, so, and the many of the terms that we covered last week, we will be using today. And so there's some assumption that you're familiar with those terms. Uh, and that's why we put that glossary together for you last week. But as we've been discussing, the pivotal issue in the study of eschatology or end times is usually described as the, the timing of the second coming of Jesus in relationship to the millennial kingdom that is on earth. However, another equally uh, significant area is what one believes about Israel and the church. Has the church replaced Israel? Will God literally fulfill his promises to Israel? Spiritual promises, national, geographical, political. Or are all of those promises now fulfilled in some way in the church instead? So the common ground between the amillennial, the, the postmillennial, and really the historic premillennial position as well are that they affirm that the church, in, at least in some sense, is the new or true Israel. And often the common element between all of these beliefs can be tracked back to an underlying belief in the theological system known as covenant theology. Uh, we, we won't discuss covenant theology in, in really today much, but in discussing these various positions collectively, sometimes I'll use the term uh, covenantalist, or, covenant, or covenantalism. And what I mean is that these, it is these various positions that have some aspect of replacement theology at, at their root. And usually, and usually that's tied to their belief in covenant theology. So the question is, why do all of these differences exist? And, and fundamentally, it has to do with what we see as the nature of God's word itself. And nothing will be as influential and determinative of where you land on these various eschatological positions, these end times positions, as our hermeneutics, right? Hermeneutics is really just a fancy word. Is It is that group of principles that we use and we employ in the process of interpreting the words of others. And in particular here, the words of Scripture. And so it's how, how do we understand when a word is spoken how we get to the meaning of that word. Uh, I, I asked my, my daughter asked me, my youngest daughter asked me today, what was I, was I teaching about? And I said, it's, we're teaching about how to read the Bible. And she says, I, I know, you just read the words. And in some senses, it's, that's, that's, that's what we're, we're talking about. It's that simple. But um, so what is determinative in our eschatology is often our hermeneutics. And, and certainly there are other presuppositions that explain those differences, but at the root is the issue of hermeneutics, 
We all agree within evangelicalism on the inerrancy, the authority, the sufficiency of Scripture. But our rules of engagement with that Scripture vary from position to position. So today what we want to talk about, and I have on your handout, is three crucial hermeneutical issues at the center of the divide of eschatology. And I, and I do want to apologize in advance. Is it, it feels a little odd to be up here, and we're not going to be opening up Scripture in front of us very often today. And I just want to say that out front, and that's one of the roles that Equipping Hour can play. So it can have us have conversations that aren't distinctly just the preaching of Scripture. But where we want to go in future sessions is after we've got through these kind of this introductory material, is we do want to begin to track biblically what does the Bible say about the end times. And I think in future sessions we'll begin to build that case, and so we'll be in Scripture far more often. So I just want to admit that right up front. Um, today, again, this is still introductory to before we dive in. And so, so where one f- lands on these three hermeneutical issues really def- oftentimes drive where we're going to stand on when Christ will return and what is the nature of the church and Israel and the relationship between the two. So the first crucial issue concerning hermeneutics is the validity of literal interpretation. So your perspective on the validity of literal interpretation will affect your eschatology and how you study God's word in general. So is literal interpretation a valid method of approaching God's word? And when we say literal, we mean interpretation using the grammatical historical approach. We take the plain meaning of a passage based on its grammar given in its historical context, as intended by the original author for the original audience, as the literal meaning of a particular text. And traditionally, the term literal has been commonly used to summarize the the premillennial approach to interpretation, or particularly the the approach of futuristic premillennialism or dispensationalism. Um, And so for purposes of today's conversation, I'll probably look at both of those terms as somewhat synonymous, although we we might quibble about that a little bit. And so just in terms of as a distinctive of futuristic premillennialism or dispensationalism, Charles Ryrie, if you're familiar with that name, said in the mid-20th century that consistently literal interpretation was, in fact, a sine qua non uh, or an essential component of dispensationalism, right? Futuristic premillennialists have repeatedly claimed that it is dispensationalism alone, that that non-covenantal form of premillennialism, that seeks to apply the principle of literal interpretation consistently when reading all parts of the Bible, including prophecy, And until more recently, this dispensational distinctive was acknowledged even by those who are against premillennialism. And I have a quote for you on the page from from O.T. Alice, who is a prominent amillennial. And about 50 years ago, he said, and it's on the page, literal interpretation has always been a marked feature of premillennialism. In dispensationalism, however, it has been carried to an extreme. We have seen that this literalism found its most thoroughgoing expression in the claim that Israel, 
must mean Israel, that it cannot mean the church. That the Old Testament prophecies regarding Israel, concerning the earthly Israel, and that the church was a mystery unknown to the Old Testament prophets and first made known to the Apostle Paul. Now, if the principle of interpretation is adopted, that Israel always means Israel, that it does not mean the church, then it follows of necessity that practically all of our information regarding the millennium will concern a Jewish or an Israelitist age. And that's interesting. This critic of dispensationalism, premillennialism, identified one of its defining characteristics as literal interpretation. And notice what he says. If we are to agree that Israel always means Israel and not the church, then it follows that the millennial kingdom will have a distinctively Jewish flavor to it. And why? Because that is what the Old Testament describes. Another critic of premillennialism, Floyd Hamilton, said this, and this is on your page, we must frankly admit that a literal interpretation of the Old Testament prophecies gives us just such a picture of an earthly reign of Messiah as the premillennialist pictures. A postmillennialist, Lorraine Bettner, and he's really well known for the Reform Doctrine of Predestination, some are familiar with that work. He also concurs, stating, It is generally agreed that if the prophecies are to be taken literally, they do tell, foretell a restoration of the nation of Israel in the land of Palestine, with the Jews having a prominent place in that kingdom and ruling over the other nations. So there it is, one of the crucial dividing places between futuristic premillennialism and covenantalism comes down to the issue of literal interpretation. Uh, These non-dispensationalists have essentially stated, if literal interpretation is valid, then premillennialism is correct. But of course they go on to critique the idea of literal interpretation, which is why it's a crucial issue. When literal interpretation is critiqued, it's usually along two major lines. The first is to claim that literal interpretation is just unsustainable. While it can be applied to certain kinds of scripture, it cannot be applied generally to all, and therefore it's just not sustainable. On on your page is a quote from Kenneth Gentry on the bottom of the front page. Postmillennialist Kenneth Gentry says, despite the vigorous assertions of dispensationalists, consistent literalism is an impossible ideal and unreasonable. Um, another quote from an amillennialist, this is not on your page, from Vern Poitras states, the principle of literal if possible is particularly misleading when used with apocalyptic literature since it forces upon the literature an inappropriate stringent idea of literalism, wildly underestimating the pervasiveness of symbolism. So the critique is those who claim literal interpretation just ignore symbols in the Bible. And to a large extent, this criticism reflects confusion or disagreement on the meaning of the term literal. So while proponents from all three major camps of eschatology embrace literal interpretation to some extent. 
It's really common for the critics of this to describe dispensational premillennialism's dispensational premillennialism interpretative approach as woodenly literal or hyperliteral, as if dispensationalists by default reject the existence of figures of speech in scripture, or we reject different types of literary styles. And both of those really are just unfortunate mischaracterizations. Um, Actually, Kenneth Gentry, previously quoted, he actually claims that to have a consistently literal interpretation seems to imply that we should believe that Jesus was an actual door, or along with Joseph Smith, the founder of Mormonism, that God has an actual body. Therefore, a literal interpretation just it's just not realistic. It's not sustainable. So that was the old argument. The more recent argument is that literal hermeneutics is just unhelpful. It, it might be misleading or potentially it's actually untruthful. And, and Gentry's criticism, and this is at the this is on your page, Kenneth Gentry's quote, really reflects the general tone of this of this argument against it. Besides being naive, the dispensational claim to consistent literalism is frustrating due to its inconsistent employment. Another, another quote, not on your notes. Vern Poitras says, what is literal interpretation anyway? Isn't it a confusing term that can be capable of being used to beg many of the questions at stake in the interpretation of the Bible? We had just best not use the phrase. So, so should we abandon this term literal? Uh, more recent non-dispensationalists have actually taken the argument a step further and said that the claim to literal interpretation is so unhelpful because in actuality, dispensationalists are a lot less consistent than they claim and non-dispensationalists are a lot more literal than is, in, than is appreciated. And so if I can turn your attention to this quote that is on your page, the bottom of the second page, all millennialists, Ken Riddlebarger says, this is a really a revealing quote, the dispensationalist literalistic reading of prophetic passages must not be confused with a literal reading. It is all millennialists, not dispensationalists, who interpret prophecy literally. So here he has an amillennialist claiming that hey, it's us that, tra- that interpret the Bible literally. In that they follow the literal sense of how the writers of the New Testament interpret Old Testament prophecy. So did you catch that description? Amillennialists interpret prophecy literally. In what sense? That they follow the literal sense of how the writers of the New Testament interpret Old Testament. And how is this literal meaning to be understood and arrived at. It is the New Testament interpretation of the Old Testament that we can use to supposedly discover the meaning of the Old Testament. In other words, the literal meaning of the Old Testament can only be discovered in the New Testament. And that's a problematic statement. He's saying without the New Testament, we can't even understand what the Old Testament is saying. So just in summarizing this, 
The older critics said that dispensationalists can't be consistent in applying a literal hermeneutic in all parts of the Bible. And the newer argument is that everyone uses literal interpretation and everyone is equally as consistent or inconsistent or, in some cases, amillennialists are more consistent. Therefore, we should just abandon the term as unhelpful. So how should we respond? Um, I don't know that the claim to a literal hermeneutics should be so quickly abandoned. But how can it be affirmed correctly? We need to identify correctly some key terms. And literal interpretation has been mischaracterized, so we should be clear what we mean by it. Um, John Feinberg said, The difference is not literalism versus non-literalism, but different understandings of what constitutes literal hermeneutics. So in other words, what we mean by literal isn't what others mean by literal. So what do we mean? Consistent literal interpretation does not ignore or devalue figurative language, and that's the mischaracterization. When we use the term consistent literal interpretation, we refer to the need to interpret each passage of Scripture according to the simple, pure, and natural sense of the words as it accords with the normal rules of grammar and normal use of language. And so this is the literal approach. And this is what can also be called the grammatical historical approach, looking at how that language is used and interpreting it in that particular context. And we recognize that language is often used to, to emphasize things through metaphorical terminology. Right? God has given human language a unique ability to communicate through special emphasis, with special power through the abnormal use of language, in what we call metaphorical or figurative language. But with the literal approach, we're careful to emphasize that it is not the interpreter who has the authority to decide what is figurative and what is not. The interpreter cannot be the one that determines when language is literal or figurative based on external criteria that has nothing to do with the immediate context. Where the interpreter can't merely look at the content of the language deem that it's a promise or prophecy, and then determine it must be figurative simply because it's prophecy. Rather, a consistent literal approach asserts that it is the author alone, according to his historical context and through his own language, who is able to determine um, what the meaning of his language is and what he will communicate through the use of that normal language. And that is what distinguishes a consistently literal approach from a non-literal approach. Right? We look at the author as the one who has authority for the meaning of their own words. Whereas a non-literal approach interprets a text in non-literal manners, even when there is no indication in that passage that the author who wrote those words indicated that this should be understood abnormally. Right? For as, as an example, if Isaiah or Paul used the word Israel, then we should approach it literally unless Isaiah or Paul indicated in that context that they were departing from the normal use of terms in a non-literal way. Or the, perhaps the literal use of the word prevents some absurdity, which is a clue that the author might be using it in an abnormal sense. And so, so ultimately, it is this consistently literal approach that recognizes and protects the authority of the original author. So you might be asking, well, why is the authority of the original author even important? 
Well, if the original author isn't the authority for what their own words mean, then we have disconnected ourselves from ever knowing what they meant. And if, if I can, if I can use an example, as I have a teenager, and suppose hypothetically I were to give her an instruction, I would like you to clean your room before I get home. And my daughter might have all sorts of different ideas about what this means and what it doesn't mean. She could potentially think that my words were an expression of my deep, heartfelt desire that her room gets cleaned before she goes off to college. Is that what I mean? Perhaps you might think, he only means I need to start cleaning my room. I don't need to actually finish. Or perhaps he only meant I need to clean the clothes up off the floor, not that I need to put them away or off or clean off my desk. Right? Parents, who gets to determine the meaning of my words? Right? The one who's speaking them. But how does she understand my meaning? Right? She listens to the words I spoke in the context that I intended them to be understood. So what's the context that she should interpret my words from? My my slightly raised, disappointed voice might be a good indication that I'm not expressing a heartfelt desire, but rather communicating an instruction. Additionally, the inclusion of a time period before I get home communicates a deadline, an expectation of completion. In normal speech, it is the speaker or the author who determines the meaning. And others have to discover what that meaning is based upon the language and the context. And it's no different when we come to our Bible. If the meaning of the Old Testament doesn't rest with its writers, then the Old Testament is rendered useless in terms of our ability to understand its meaning. And it undermines really everything we said in week one of this class. How can it be profitable for teaching, for correction, or for rebuke, for training in righteousness if I can't read it and understand what it says without a New Testament lens? But why stop there? If God saw fit to leave the nation of Israel with revelation from him for over 1,500 years that couldn't truly be understood without some later New Testament aid... How can we be confident that we can accurately understand our New Testaments? If we can't be certain that we can understand the meaning of the Old Testament, why should we be certain that we can ever get to the meaning of the New Testament? And that's one of the points of Romans 9 through 11, that we can be certain of what Paul has taught us concerning the gospel based on the fact that God has proven himself trustworthy and will prove himself trustworthy to fulfill his Old Testament promises. So so eschatology really highlights this need to return to the basics of hermeneutics or interpretation. When we yield to the notion that everyone across the evangelical spectrum is more or less using the same principles everywhere, then really we are left with two pretty poor alternatives to explain why we arrive at different conclusions. Number one, we attribute our eschatological differences due to the ambiguity of God's word or God's failure to communicate clearly. Hey, we all have the same principles of interpretation. The Bible's at fault. God just didn't communicate it clearly. It's dark and mysterious, and we just can't know. 
What's the other alternative? The other alternative is to attribute the differences to the irresistibility of our pre-understandings. Right? The only reason for the differences has to do with our conditioning, our experiences. It has to do with the communities in which we are raised, and therefore we can't really expect to rise above our communities, our experiences, our traditions. So then we begin to measure faithfulness to our community, faithfulness to our traditions, rather than to the standard of truth. And, and just a quick note on that, and we will open one, the Bible here, Turn to Hebrews 4, chapter 12, and this is the familiar passage, and usually we think of this passage when discussing that the the word of God discloses and makes manifest our sin, and and I would agree that's the primary use, but let's read this together. I think there's, there's another implication here, for the word of God is living and active, and sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Do we believe that Scripture can actually expose our pre-understandings and clearly communicate so that we can actually get out of our preconditioning? I would say yes. So simply stated, and we've belabored the first point, is dispensational premillennialism um, advocates a consistent approach to the biblical text with the assumption that it must be read literally, how the original author used it using their own language. The second critical area in the divide over eschatology is your understanding of the nature of progressive revelation. How you understand the relationship of later revelation to revelation that came before it, or subsequent revelation to antecedent revelation. God did not reveal all the knowledge that is contained in our Bibles all at once. In order to do so one doctrine at a time. No, he gradually revealed what he wanted us to know about his word, his character, through a process covering 1,500 years and dozens of authors. And everyone across the theological spectrum affirms this. But does subsequent revelation, does later revelation, add to and expand previous revelation? Or does subsequent revelation add to and alter previous revelation? And this is a huge issue. And it comes down to the whole issue of the New Testament use of the Old Testament. And it comes down to what is to be called testament priority. In other words, to understand the meaning of written revelation correctly, what testament do you begin with? Must the interpreter of Scripture read Scripture forwards, beginning with the Old Testament context, and moving forward to the New Testament in order to understand God's redemptive plan accurately? Or does it read backwards, beginning with the New Testament, and then reading the Old Testament through the lens of the New Testament? Right, it's so important, and this quote is, I believe on your page, that John Feinberg states, it is difficult to think of any other problem that is more important or fundamental than the relationship between the Testaments. And that's, that's a big claim. For dispensationalism, the starting point is the Old Testament, and the approach to exegesis is to 
read from the beginning to the end, from Genesis to Revelation, the Old Testament text, or what we call the antecedent revelation, is to be treated as unchanging. It has been frozen on the page by the inspired writer and can be accessed through the grammatical historical method, the literal method, which looks to the author's intent as an unchangeable meaning of the text. What the text meant is always what it means. So you interpret Isaiah, for example, according to how Isaiah intended his words to be understood in the light of that context and and in light of the earlier revelation that informed Isaiah. Certainly, the New Testament adds more detail about the Messiah, maybe than what Isaiah had said. It even explains how certain prophecies that Isaiah made were fulfilled. And it even provides new information about the Messiah that Isaiah never knew. But the New Testament does not change the meaning of Isaiah's words. I want to turn back to my daughter's room. I've given her an instruction, and she should interpret it according to the context in which it was given. The context in this case might also include similar instructions that I've given to her in the past and previously communicated what my expectation for what a clean room consists of. I don't need to repeat each and every detail every time that I give her the same instruction. I'm expecting her to remember my words spoken in the past. Perhaps I've previously communicated to her that that cleaning her room includes vacuuming. The absence of repeating this expectation in the future doesn't negate that expectation. Right? Certainly on future occasions, I might give her additional instructions such as, today as you're cleaning your room, I'd like you to vacuum the hallway. What I don't mean is, instead of vacuuming your room, vacuum the hallway instead. Right? The hallway carpet hasn't become the bedroom carpet or replaced it. No, my expectation It's concerning her bedroom floor still stands. I've merely given her additional instruction. So in the case of our New Testament, this is important because, and let me just go back up a second, we describe the position of the covenantalist as Testament priority or New Testament priority where we look to the New Testament and we interpret the Old Testament in light of it. You know, we read the New Testament into it. It gives us our understanding. It allows us to reinterpret it. What we're not advocating is the opposite position that we, we want to approach it from Old Testament priority where the meaning of the Old Testament is the meaning and where the New Testament doesn't agree with it, we change the meaning of the New Testament to align with the Old Testament. Right? That's not what we're saying. Um, actually, I like the, the term that Michael Vlock used yesterday. We're advocating a, posi- a position of passage priority. We look for what each passage says on its own terms, in its own context. And when we get to the New Testament... What is the context of the New Testament? What was the context of the original writers and recipients? It was a familiarity with the Old Testament. So why do we read our Old Testament? One reason is so that we can interpret our New Testament, not because the Old Testament changes the meaning of the New Testament, but because the Old Testament informs the context that the New Testament writers assumed, which is needed to interpret the right, our New Testaments. So the, hopefully you understand the difference. We're not advocating Old Testament priority instead of New Testament priority. 
We're advocating we look at each passage in its context, and we can't understand the context of the New Testament without understanding what had gone before in the Old. So how have non-dispensationalists critiqued this view of progressive revelation? Number one, the New Testament must reinterpret the meaning of the Old Testament. Non-dispensationalists fundamentally reject a forward approach to reading and instead embrace a completely different approach to the relationship of these testaments. And consider, and I believe I have this page, this quote on the page for you, what George Eldon Ladd said, and he is a historic premillennialist. He said, here is the basic watershed between a dispensational and a non-dispensational theology. Dispensationalism forms its theology by a literal understanding of the Old Testament and then fits the New Testament into it. And I've probably changed that definition a little bit, as we just discussed. But, but a non-dispensationalist forms his theology by the explicit teaching of the New Testament. Right, the covenantalist sees the only true Christian way of reading the Bible is reading from the New Testament backwards. In other words, you have New Testament priority. And the nature of the progress of revelation is that, the, is that of addition and alteration or changing the meaning of prior revelation or adding new meaning to prior revelation. Another quote at the bottom of the page Kim Riddlebarger, who's an amillennial, holds that the New Testament is the final arbiter of the Old Testament. We must interpret all Old Testament prophecy as do the writers of the New. We should place such prophecy in its redemptive historical context if we are to interpret it correctly. So I don't know if you noticed that. Rather than a grammatical historical approach, there is a focus on a redemptive historical approach. And so it is this understanding of the progress of revelation that renders the the non-dispensationalists incapable of asserting generally that they can apply a consistent hermeneutic. As much as they may claim to apply a consistent hermeneutic, they admit that a consistent literal hermeneutic cannot be applied to the Old Testament with any respect to prophecy or promise. Um, One author said this. Actually, I'm going to move past this quote. It's not in your page. Um, Justification for this type of a kind of more spiritualized reading of the Old Testament is often traced back to this paradigm-shifting event of Christ's first coming. And, and so I have another quote for you. Actually, no, this one's not on your page two. I apologize. From, from Ladd, who we previously read, he said, the fact is that the New Testament frequently interprets the Old Testament prophecy in a way not suggested by the Old Testament context. The Old Testament is reinterpreted in light of the Christ event. So according to this view... Christ's first coming fundamentally changes the essence of Old Testament prophecies. A mutation occurs in light of that. And then it is claimed that the New Testament apostles followed upon that and spiritualized the Old Testament. A second argument related to this and flowing out of this 
is that the New Testament must reaffirm the revelation of the Old Testament. So not only does Scripture reinterpret it, but the New Testament must reaffirm Old Testament revelation. And if it does not, then that revelation is not necessarily binding any longer. So here's a quote. It is on the bottom of page two of your notes. A quote from, uh, we already looked at this quote from George Eldon Ladd, who talked about how do we form our theology? It is by the explicit teaching of the New Testament. He is a premillennial. He, he believes in a future kingdom. He may or may not believe it's a thousand years, but he believes in a future earthly kingdom. But it's interesting to note that he limits his entire understanding of that millennial kingdom only to the New Testament, which means he can completely ignore the Jewish flavor of it. And that's how it sometimes lived out. So for the covenantalists, the New Testament has ultimate veto power over the Old Testament. And it exercises this veto power by direct nullification. Like, for example, the Mosaic Law, which the New Testament says it's no longer binding for the current age, to which we'd agree. But the covenantalists will see, often see, the New Testament's veto power also exercised by its silence. If the New Testament does not repeat something in the Old Testament, especially as it's related to prophecy, especially as it's related to Israel, if there's no repetition of that truth in the New Testament, well, then we need to hold it suspect, and often it will result in the spiritualizing of that text. The whole position holds that the Old Testament is viewed as earthly and provisional, but it is the New Testament that is spiritual and eternal. So therefore, only the New Testament can really provide us with our theology, especially about the future. So what is at stake here? First, it is our understanding of the Old Testament as revelation from God. Right, This backwards-reading New Testament priority approach has serious ramifications for how we view the integrity of the Old Testament as fully authoritative and errant. Right? The New Testament priority approach downplays all of the unique contributions that the Old Testament can make to our theology. But does this provisional character apply to other areas of the Old Testament beyond the promises to Israel? What about the revelations that are unique to the Old Testament that refer to God's character? Are those earthly and temporal as well? Should we ignore all what the book of Proverbs has to say about parenting? Are those, is that also earthly and temporal truth? Right? It's very dangerous to think that we can make distinctions about what transfers into the New Testament solely based on the silence of the New Testament or based on the type of content of the, of the literature. Or the idea of, you know, if the New Testament didn't repeat it, it's not a truth for today. So there's a quote on your page from S. Lewis Johnson, which I think really summarizes as well. There is no need to repeat what is copiously spread over the pages of Scripture. There seems to be lurking behind the demand a false principle, namely that we should not give heed to the Old Testament unless the content is repeated in the New. The correct principle, however, is that we should not consider as invalid or worthy of discard any of the Old Testament unless we are specifically told to do so in the New. 
as in the case of the law of Moses. And it is this approach that best respects the Old Testament as fully inerrant and authoritative in a word from God. Secondly, what's at stake is our understanding of the nature of revelation. What does it mean if we have an approach to Scripture that sees the meaning of Scripture as changing? That what it meant is no longer what it means today. Can God's meaning that he gave in the original context, can it change from era to era? Certainly our application of a given passage might look different from era to era. But there's no reason anywhere in Scripture to find a basis for this kind of change in the meaning of the text. Right? There is no difference in the inspiration that the Old Testament writers experienced. It's not fundamentally different than what the inspiration that the New Testament writers experienced. There's a quote on page three of your notes from Robert Thomas, and he says this, Progress in divine revelation is quite apparent in tracing through the books of the Old Testament chronologically. But progress in the sense of only adding to what has been revealed, but not in any sense of a change of previous revelation. To change the substance of something already written is not progress. It is an alteration that raises questions about the credibility of the text's original meaning. Thirdly, the New Testament's use of the Old Testament is about a lot more than simply trying to show fulfillment. One of the problems in covenantal views is to see the New Testament as always reinterpreting the Old Testament by virtue of the use of the Old Testament. Just because the New Testament uses the Old Testament doesn't mean that it is an automatic prophecy fulfillment, doesn't mean that it's an automatic reinterpretation. One of the common arguments we see is that since the apostles and New Testament authors didn't respect the original literal meaning of the Old Testament when they quoted it, neither do we. We would argue, yes, they did. And in fact, they were far better acquainted with the Old Testament and the context than we were. And when they use those passages, they use them with utmost respect for the original meaning. They never change the meaning. They sometimes add new details. They may adopt the words of the Old Testament prophet for a new purpose. But the original context and meaning was always an integral part of that new usage. And we could spend weeks talking about this. In fact, I took a course in college where we spent six months talking about this. But if if this is a subject that interests you, we have a book at our book table. It's probably not an intro-level book. But it does drive at the heart of this issue, and it's called The Hermeneutics of the Biblical Writers by Abner Chow. And he argues that whenever the New Testament uses the Old Testament, it's doing it with utmost reference and deference to the Old Testament context and meaning. So it's a great resource. Finally, the third critical hermeneutical issue that impacts the divide over eschatological positions is your awareness and sensitivity to the role of theological presupposition. What, that, what you already believe about eschatology, what you already believe about theology. So certainly, right, what we, what we, those convictions that we've already arisen to through our study of scripture, right, they're going to have an impact on how we arrive at our eschatology. It's true, All of us are affected by our presuppositions, and we're not doubting that. 
the question, are we to embrace our theological presuppositions and use it as a hermeneutical tool to understand the meaning of Scripture? So J.I. Packer, probably familiar with that name, he stated in response to a question about what is covenant theology? And this quote is on your page from J.I. Packer. And that's the question he's answering. What is covenant theology? It is the straightforward, if provocative, answer to that question is that it is what is nowadays called a hermeneutic. Right? Get that. He identifies covenant theology as a hermeneutic. That is, it is essential to have covenant theology as a principle for interpreting the biblical text. We'll continue reading on. That is, it is a way of reading the Bible itself that is itself a part of the overall interpretation of the Bible that undergirds it. A successful hermeneutic is a consistent interpretive procedure yielding a consistent understanding of Scripture. Sounds good so far. But that in turn conforms the propriety of the procedure itself. Once Christians have gotten this far, covenant theology of the scriptures is something that they can hardly miss. So what's he saying? Hey, you know, if you approach scripture with covenant theology, you will hardly miss covenant theology in the scriptures. And, and that raises the issue, is theology a hermeneutic? Right, so the dispensational premillennialists will attempt, though not always successful, but will attempt to minimize and put aside the impact of theology in our interpretation of the scriptures. We want to hear what the scripture has to say on its own terms and allow that to impact and change and modify and and form our theology, not the other way around. But what is remarkable about covenantal systems is their willingness to embrace their own theology as their hermeneutic And so that's why you often have non-dispensationalists claiming not to have a grammatical historical. We already talked about a redemptive historical. But you might also hear the term a grammatical historical theological method. right? And that adjective is important. It's not just the grammar and historical context, but theology is important for interpreting the text. So let me just give you some catchwords to be aware of as you read literature and try to discern the kind of influence that theology has in the process of exegesis or deriving meaning out of the scripture. For some, they might call it the canonical approach. The scripture cannot be interpreted in its parts without the meaning of the whole. Some will call it theological interpretation. And another term to be aware of is biblical theology. Yep, biblical theology. Now, Biblical theology is good if what we mean by it is the tracing of a particular knowledge that God has revealed through the entirety of scriptures. Or maybe looking at one author's contribution to the revelation of God as compared to another author. Actually, over the last two days, many of us listened to Dr. Michael Vlock present an excellent biblical theology of the kingdom of God. But what can actually often happen with biblical theology is that an overall message can be chosen and then deductively read back into each part of the biblical text rather than inductively from the text. So be aware of the use of that term. 
It's a good term, but people sometimes have very different ideas of what it means. So finally, hermeneutics is necessary to protect the authority of the original writer. And it really is an issue of authority. When we come down to the role of theological presupposition, it comes down to an issue of authority. What will determine and flavor and color your conclusions? Like good, sound hermeneutics are those principles that you will use to work, to muffle and to silence your own pre-understandings, and instead open your ears to what the author has to say. And so we need to know hermeneutics, if for no other reason than to preserve us from the folly and error of faulty principles of understanding. Right? And this applies as much to the doctrine of justification as it does to the doctrine of future things. Right? Paul gave Timothy a challenge. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed accurately handling the word of truth. And when it comes to the exegesis of prophecy, we need to heed these words. So just a couple of practical considerations in our last minute or so. Is context matters. We, we want you to come away from this and understand this is the read your Bible message. It's also the read your whole Bible message. And specifically, read your whole Bible chronologically. I'm not saying you have to be on a plan that leaves you not reading the New Testament until April or October. But we should understand that it is revealed progressively and at some point... I would recommend reading through the Bible chronologically. You can be reading in two places at once. You can read in the New Testament at the same time. Another recommendation is to read whole books of the Bible. I know many of us are on reading plans that might have us read one chapter per day in four different areas, and that's really helpful. It exposes us to all of God's word. Sometimes it helps us get through those areas that are just maybe hard to read day after day. Um, But sometimes we miss the overall context of an entire book when we don't read it sequentially together, in one, sometimes in one sitting. As, as you come in to read scripture, particularly prophetic books, it's really helpful to familiarize yourself with the historical context ahead of time. For example, if you're going to be reading Isaiah, it's really helpful to kind of know what's happening, Second Kings, Second Chronicles, a lot of other areas too, but it's really helpful to have that background. So I would recommend, before you start reading a book, perhaps you've got a, a Bible dictionary or even a study Bible, the MacArthur Study Bible, a lot of people carry that, it's really helpful. Re- familiarize yourself at the beginning what, with the background of the book. Maybe familiarize yourself with the outline of the book. Next, stay in your passage. Resist the temptation to run all over Scripture to understand what this passage says. Um, there are helps in doing that, but this passage's meaning is found in, its, in itself. Now, what can be helpful is, as we look to other passages to help inform the context of this passage, remembering that the context of later revelation is, in fact, what's come before. And finally, I say practice biblical theology, and I just give you a warning about biblical theology. Now I'm saying practice it. And what I mean is, If there's a topic of scripture that you're looking up, long to see what God has revealed about it progressively. If you're on a chronological reading plan, look at us and you want to study a particular topic, get out your piece of paper and as you read through the Bible, comment on how God progressively reveals more and more about that throughout the pages of scripture.
And watch out for this when you see passages that are quoted in the New. Um, If you see the New Testament quoting an Old Testament passage, don't just assume that they're changing the meaning of it, but go back and read the Old Testament passage. Read the context around it. I think a lot of our conundrums about what our New Testament author is doing with the Old Testament can really be addressed if we were immersed in what the original usage was and understand those contexts. A couple places of where to start. Um, I don't have the, I apologize for not putting the resources and recommended resources at the bottom. Um, this has just been an introduction, but if you want a really good work that just gives you a great introduction, some of what we covered here and actually takes it a little bit further, but at an introductory level, uh, there's a book in the back called Christ's Prophetic Plans by MacArthur and Mayhew. It's a great book that discusses really and argues for futuristic premillennialism. It's a great resource. Uh, we've already spent a lot of time talking about Michael Vlock's um, He Shall Reign Forever, but that's a really great resource. It's long, but it helps to understand. If I understand my Bible and what the kingdom of God has revealed from Genesis to Revelation, and I've, and I've been immersed in the Old Testament and how God has progressively revealed that, it's going to make a lot of the timing of events a lot easier because I understand what God has been revealing. So that book is back there. Or Omri, I think, is actually ordering more copies. So if you do want a copy of He Shall Reign Forever, let Omri know. There's a couple other resources in the back. Uh, one of them is continuity and discontinuity. Um, some essays on understanding what's the same between the old and the new and what's different. Um, the, it's kind of a two-views book, so, but the sections that, that are coming from the discontinuity perspective are really valuable. Matt Wehmeyer has a book. If you want to jump into understanding the millennium itself and the thousand years, uh, it's a really short book called Revelation 20 and the Millennial Debate. We recommend that resource. If you want to jump into really a, 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 an argument um, dealing with some of the most recent claims of the amillennial position. Matt Wehmeyer has an excellent resource, Amillennialism and the Age to Come. Uh, maybe not your first book dealing with amillennialism, but it answers a very specific argument, but it's a really helpful resource. Um, and finally, and I already, I already mentioned Abner Chow's book dealing with the use of the Old Testament in the New. So with that, we are, we are about five minutes out of time. Thank you for your patience. Um, th- hopefully this has been informative. Uh, as we, when we come back together, hopefully sometime next year, we can begin to see what does God's word actually have to say about the end and begin to kind of build a biblical perspective of of what's to come. Thank you. You're dismissed.